I'm Elena Biberman. And I'm Zach Troyanovsky. Welcome to our last episode of How to Kill a Superpower, Lessons from USSR. Here we will be wrapping up our exploration of the dissolution of the Soviet Union. In the process, we will be figuring out what to call what happened at Bilaveja. We look at what happened to our heroes since their fateful weekend. And we talk about Tetris. I've, you know, I've been playing Tetris my whole life, but I never knew that it was a Soviet game. Though, during our time working on this podcast, I, I definitely think I've succumbed to the Tetris effect. Uh, what's the Tetris effect? It's when someone devotes so much time to an activity or game that the pattern of that activity affects their thoughts and their dreams. So it's named after Tetris because it was observed that people who played the game for too long began to think about how real-world items would fit together as if they were shapes in Tetris. Oh, I see. So your Tetris effect? It was that I began to see people in my life and media through the lens of the characters of our story. I would see everyone as either a Shushchevich, a Yeltsin, or a Kravchuk. Okay, I wonder who I am. Maybe Yeltsin? I think I'd probably go with Shushchevich. <laughs> From here, you saw this. Maybe not all people could be categorized this way, but I think you may be onto something. You're not the only one seeing through the lens of Bilavieja. In 2016, at the anniversary event hosted by the Atlantic Council, Gennady Burbuli said that the Bilavieja consensus model could be useful for the world today. Burbulis is saying here that the world needs to understand that the only way to solve conflict is through dialogue, consensus, and mutual understanding. What is the Belvedere consensus model? Okay, so let's figure that out. And while we're at it, let's figure out what we should be calling what happened at Belavieja. Was it a revolution, a coup, an act of courage, or treason? Or maybe it was something completely unique and unreproducible. The same year the USSR dissolved, the United States initiated military action against Iraq. This was in response to Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait. But French philosopher Jean Baudrillard in the collection of essays published in European newspapers during this time, made what seemed like a mind-bending claim that, quote, the Gulf War did not take place. What Boudrillard was doing was reminding us to distinguish between what things are called and what they actually are. It's kind of like that old saying about the Holy Roman Empire in that it's not holy, it's not Roman, and it's not an empire. <laughs> yep. Baudrillard was at the time challenging the passive consumption of the label war. Why was Iraq's action in Kuwait called an invasion rather than Kuwait war, while U.S. action in Iraq was called the Gulf War? He argued that when the media packages something as a war, we uncritically take it as such. When it doesn't, like debilitating economic sanctions, which cause deaths of thousands, we don't see it as a war. War was neither the goal nor outcome of America's action in Iraq, according to Baudrillard. The American military political establishment chose an adversary much weaker in military capacity and then declared a war with it. America's, quote, victory over Iraq then acted to perpetuate America's image of strength. Well, so what is remarkable about the Belavezia events is that they are widely unknown. There's no term or media label, no debate, no narrative. It's almost as if none of it ever happened. I think this raises an interesting question. 
Why is there silence in the popular culture about such a momentous event? Well, so before starting this project with you, I had never heard about Shostakovich or Kravchuk. I have heard of Yeltsin, but mostly for his drunken shenanigans. Well, the silence about Bilavieja is particularly striking when we consider how much attention the fall of the Berlin Wall received. Drawn on Baudrillard, we could say that because the popular media did not immortalize the events of Bilavieja, there is no politically prepackaged term for us to describe them. So we need to figure this out. When we give something a name, it makes it visible and analyzable. So what should we call what happened? Okay, well, let's start with the term revolution. It's a popular term we hear a lot in American politics nowadays. But what does it mean? You're right. The term revolution is being used for policies as basic, well, at least among wealthy countries, as universal health care or as extreme as violent overthrow of U.S. government. Well, what would that actually look like? Well, let me give you an example from one of my favorite stories. Um, it's a story of beans, as described by Leon Trotsky in his memoir. While embarking on his revolutionary path as a young man, Trotsky decided that he should go out into the real world and meet some real workers. He soon met an electrician named Ivan Muhin. An excited young man, Trotsky asked Muhin what he believed needs to be done to help the working people of then Tsarist Russia. Muhin explained, okay, quote, I put a bean on the table and say, this is the czar. Around it, I place more beans. These are the ministers, bishops, generals, and over there is gentry and merchants. And in this other heap, the plain people. Now I ask, where's the czar? You point to the center. Where are the ministers? You point to those around. Just as I told you, you answer. Now wait. Then I scramble all the beans. I say, now tell me where's the czar, the ministers. And you answer me, who can tell? You can't spot them now. And so I say, all beans should be scrambled. This blew Trotsky's mind. He recalls in his memoir, quote, I was so thrilled at this story that I was all in a sweat. <laughs> so did the Belavezha events scramble all the beans? Well, not really, I think. Gorbachev's bean got tossed, but many remained. Like the Yeltsin, Kravchuk, and Shishevich beans. <laughs> yes. New beans also emerged, the so-called oligarchs. Though ordinary Russians soon grew to hate them, these overwhelmingly corrupt business tycoons. Yeltsin's successor, Vladimir Putin, gained tremendous popularity for reining them in, at least some of them. Well, so we may not be able to call what culminated in Belavezha a social revolution, but can we call it some sort of top-down revolution? Well, this is the argument made by researcher Gordon Hahn. He describes it as a revolution from above. This he defines as an illegal takeover of state institution by high-ranking officials and bureaucrats in order to overthrow the entire system with little or no mass participation. Wait, isn't that just a coup? Okay, so to figure that out, I talked to my friend and coup expert, Erica De Bruin. 
That's a great question. I think that there would be possibly some disagreement among scholars of coups about whether or not that would fit. I think from my own perspective, what those regional leaders are doing is not seizing power in an existing state, but creating their own states, right? And so it's, I think for me, part of the important aspect of, kind of how scholars think about coups is that it's a content, contestation over political power in a sort of existing state. And so if you're talking about uh, eliminating that state and creating new states, then that would be, I think, more akin to what we just think of as a secessionist movement, or uh, there's a lot of civil wars that kind of take that flavor of like what the goal is, is not to seize power in a sort of central government, but to create your own new political entity. And so we sort of think about those as, as different things. And for me, I mean, I will say like, I'm not I don't know how much it matters how to exactly classify each of, you know, a, a, an event like this, um, other than that we have a sort of set, a body of research about um, how to prevent coups, what the causes of coups are, what the consequences of coups are. And I think that those studies have to use a kind of narrower definition of a coup so that we know what cases are right to compare to. And I think that this uh, this the case that you're talking about, I think, wouldn't fit those kind of narrower definitions of coups. Um, and so that what that means is that most of the research we have about how to prevent coups couldn't have told us about how to prevent uh, this event from happening, right, from the, these accords from being signed and the sort of dissolution of the, the Soviet Union. When Borbulis describes the events at Belavieja, he refers to their decisions as courageous. Do you think he's right about that? Yeah, I mean, they were committing treason altering the course of history. I mean, that's undeniable. You know, in Shoshkevich's memoir, he describes himself as not very courageous. Um, so the main residential area where everyone stayed had three suites, all of them sort of equally comfortable, according to Shushkevich. Two of the suites went to Yeltsin and Kravchuk. But Shushkevich did not take the third one because... As he writes in his memoir, he knew that, quote, anything could happen. Instead, he and two of his bodyguards stayed at a nearby two-story cottage. <laughs> I interviewed a Russian filmmaker named Alexander Sridova, who, in 1992, produced a Russian TV show called Top Secret, which investigated cases of corruption and cover-ups that had been revealed by Gorbachev's glasnost policies. Sridova told me that in her journalistic circles, it was known that Gorbachev was actually aware of the meeting at Belaveja and that KGB operatives had surrounded the estate, waiting for an order from Gorbachev, which never came. Here she's saying that the forest surrounding Vistuli was full of KGB operatives who were awaiting an order to shoot, but that order never came. Plohi's account also noted that the head of the Belarusian KGB, Edward Tchaikovsky, had reported the events of Belaveja to Moscow and was awaiting Gorbachev's command on the day of the signing ceremony. It seems that what's consistent here is the notion that Gorbachev never made a move. In a 2016 interview with BBC, he explained that the reason for this is that he wanted to avoid a civil war. He said, can you imagine a split in a power struggle in a country like ours? 
History doesn't give Gorbachev enough credit, I think. Had he been a more violent, aggressive leader, this whole story might have had a much bloodier ending. I think that his aversion to violence and respect for human life was ultimately what allowed the USSR to be dissolved so peacefully. In that same interview, he notes that, quote, stepping down was my victory. In the years following the USSR's collapse, Gorbachev spent more time with his family and focused on building his foundation for political studies. He began lecturing internationally to raise money for his foundation. To supplement this, he appeared in commercials for Louis Vuitton and, quite infamously, Pizza Hut. Sometimes nothing brings people together like a nice hot pizza from Pizza Hut. He worked on his memoirs and began writing a monthly column for the New York Times addressing topics like the future of communism, the Persian Gulf War, relations between the Kremlin and the Pope, and his relationship with Yeltsin. Since Putin's rise to power, Gorbachev has spent his time promoting social democracy in Russia and publicly criticizing both Putin and the U.S.-Russia relationship. But what happened to our other heroes and their countries after Belvezia? Okay, so in 2020, the Atlantic Council published an article entitled, quote, Belarus is a reminder that the USSR is still collapsing. This was in the wake of nationwide protests against Belarusian authoritarian leader Alexander Lukashenko, who is often referred to as, quote, Europe's last dictator. After Belarus declared independence, Shushkevich removed the remainder of Belarus's nuclear arsenal without any preconditions. He had trouble pushing other reforms, though. In 1993, the chairman of the anti-corruption committee, Alexander Lukashenko, accused a number of government officials of stealing state funds. Shushkevich was accused of stealing two boxes of nails and was ousted from the government after losing a vote of confidence. In 1994, the first direct presidential elections were held and Lukashenko won. Since then, he has consolidated power and used authoritarian tactics to govern. In 2020, when Lukashenko ran for his sixth term and the government exit poll reported him receiving almost 80% of the vote, mass protests erupted. A heavy police crackdown ensued. Shoshkevich has served as a chairman of the opposition party throughout this time. He came to view Belarus's position within Russia's orbit as the central obstacle to his country becoming a free democracy. In the years leading up to 1991, Ukraine's politics was dominated by nationalistic dogma and the idea that, by achieving independence, Ukraine would separate itself from the economic downturn of the Soviet Union. But when independence finally came, Kravchuk found himself woefully unequipped to tackle the economic crisis. Kravchuk was also voted out of office in 1994. Ukraine being within Russia's orbit has also come at a price. Following a series of political dramas, economic crises, and revolutions, in 2014, Putin seized Crimea from Ukraine in an illegal move that violated the country's territorial integrity and sparked a war. Over the course of the so-called Donbas War, the insurgent-controlled eastern regions of Ukraine have witnessed what the United Nations described as an alarming deterioration in human rights. Finally, we come to Yeltsin. In the years after Belavieja, Yeltsin implemented new economic policies and transformed Russia into a market economy. This led to a lot of economic volatility. This is when the oligarchs emerged and came to dominate not only Russia's economy but also politics. In 1993, 
Yeltsin ordered the dissolution of the Russian parliament in a power grab which led to his impeachment. He remained in power for a few more years, but on the eve of the new year 2000, seconds before the clock struck midnight, Yeltsin resigned. He told his people, a new generation is taking my place, the generation of those who could do more and do it better. In accordance with the Constitution, as I go into retirement, I have signed a decree entrusting the duties of the president of Russia to Prime Minister Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. I recently learned that a photoshopped version of the original Tetris manual went viral a few years back with new names for the blocks. The L-shaped pieces are called Orange and Blue Ricky, the tube is Smash Boy, the T-shaped one is Tiwi, the Z-shaped ones are Cleveland and Rhode Island Z, and the straight line is called Hero. In Tetris, the most valuable block is the Hero, which is probably why it's called that. But the Hero is only valuable because the player builds the rest of their stack in a way which will let the Hero be valuable. It is only because of the way that the player constructs the stack that the Hero can dissolve it. I think one of the takeaways from this podcast is that there's a reason why the conventional narrative doesn't include Belvezia. Like a poorly timed Rhode Island Z, it just doesn't fit. You know, I'd like to think of the work we've done here as the hero. But I guess we're just not that good at the solution. (laughs) By the way, did I ever mention to you that my family last name used to be Trotsky? What? (laughs) We changed it when, you know, Stalin was, after Stalin had killed him and everything, but... Well, well, do you realize it's not actually his real last name? His real last name is Bronstein. Yeah, right. Yeah, he took one, on, but... yeah, he took on the name Trotsky because that was his prison guard's name when he was in Odessa, held captive. What? <laughs> so that's what you related to. <laughs> the Soviet Union, the largest communist land, had 15 republics that were centrally planned. In the Soviet structure, Moscow organized all the big republic of Russia, plus the ones that were small. This communist form of public big industries had central planning providing all the necessities, but up-to-date little goods come faster if there's computers. They could not stay modern with just big central leaders. And since World War II, East Europe had been divided in ways that were not what each place would have decided. There was not enough freedom, just one old gang in the middle. The war budget too large and people's voices too little that 1985 brought a younger guy to the top. And this guy, Gorbachev, wanted these problems to stop. Gorbachev started Glasnost, more free speech and free news. It was fine for the first time to express many views. And Gorbachev's perestroika brought democratizations. For the first time, elections let people steer their own nations. When the Berlin Wall fell, Gorbachev was surprised, but he slowed the arms race and won the Nobel Peace Prize. But then all through East Europe, former Soviet states voted to break from the Union and control their own fates. So Gorbachev sighed, but chose democracy's course. He said he'd keep things together just with discussions, not force. Old communist leaders feared big changes too fast. The whole strength of the Union might be lost to the past, but new leaders and voters all wanted change to come faster. Gorbachev's middle reform plans now were facing disaster. See as Soviet President 
Gorbachev wasn't defeated, but each republic's president now had strength just like he did, and Russia's president, Yeltsin, wanted more strength by far, so they drafted new plans for a looser USSR. But before this new compromise could be implemented, eight conservative communists launched a coup to prevent it. They kept Gorbachev trapped, but people rushed out to help defend the Soviet Congress that they had elected themselves, and Yeltsin joined with the people, and the coup met defeat, but the old Communist Party now really looked obsolete. So when Gorby returned, he was the leader of Zero. The union structure was dead, each nation had its own hero. The USSR is now no more, he announced, and Gorby sadly resigned, and Russia's president pounced. Yeltsin said it was time for the big free market test. Public resources should open for the rich to invest. But when the parliament leaders and the public protested, Yeltsin ordered the army to have them killed or arrested. So all profits went private or were bought up offshore. Millions and millions of normal people turned poor. And that's how the Soviet Union died before it enjoyed the system Gorbachev wanted fixed instead of destroyed. This podcast was made possible by the generous support of the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University and the John B. Moore Documentary Studies Collaborative at Steedmore College. A special thanks to Adam Tinkle, Jesse O'Connell, Alexandra Vacru, and Chris Martin.